Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, don't forget that this evening when uh, you have the home fellowships, that uh, the plan is to read uh, in each home the gospel of first, not the gospel, uh, the epistle of first John out loud together as a group. And so you can kind of organize yourselves for those who want to read, can read um, out loud and then, um, you know, kind of have an informal talk afterwards just about the passage, about the book, uh, about some things that sent out to you or, or whatever the case may be. Um, just kind of have a good informal time speaking about that. Uh, and then also one more thing, um, as uh, Tom mentioned, you know, every year we have a camp for the kids, in particular D3, which is uh, the camp for the middle school and high school kids. Uh, one of the things that we do is we make available scholarships for all the kids to go so that those who may not be able to, to uh, afford it can be able to come. But we also have another program involved where we, we entice them, which is another word for bribe, and that is... Uh, they can earn credit by doing some reading. The idea is, is there's books we have them read to prepare them for camp um, and to kind of get their mind right and, and begin to think about some things. And so this year there's three books. They're all small, but that, that they need to read. Uh, I think one is uh, Can You Trust the Bible? Who is Jesus Christ? Um, and uh, Sean, what's the other one? Sean's not in here. Great. What is the gospel? Pretty important question. Anyway, so they have those books to read and questions they have to answer. So again, if you are interested uh, in helping with that, just, you know, you can, as you put money in the plate uh, or in the box, uh, just mark it for, for camp. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate that uh, to help with that. Camp is not cheap, uh, but these camps are much different than they were when I went to school or when I was a kid. Uh, it's, it's interesting that these camps are very serious about the teaching of the word. There's a lot of teaching that goes on, and yet at the same time, the kids, they really do have a great time. Uh, but it's just very different, to say the least. And uh, so we do want our kids to be able to go and to experience this, and we want to have a great impact in their life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. And we thank you, Lord, for all the many wonderful things that we've been learning in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we ask that you would continue to enable us, Father, uh, to really grab hold of the things that Paul is communicating. That, Father, again, they may be profitable in our life, that they may continue to be used by your Spirit to change us, to become more like Jesus Christ in every way. We thank you, Father, again, for your ongoing presence with us, and again, uh, for preserving your word for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Working together with him. Then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, Riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and, not, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 
As we mentioned last week, Paul mentions the urgency and the time of opportunity we live in, as well as the idea that we are partnering with God in the ministry of reconciliation. So with that in mind, he then says in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. So the idea is, is because we have this ministry that God's given to every single believer, and because we are partnering with God in this ministry that God has given us, which is to declare the gospel, to speak the gospel, to share the gospel uh, with those that we meet, the idea is that we, this should have an effect on the way we are living our life, that we are to think about every aspect of our existence as human beings. And so Paul's main point here in verse 3 as he begins is he wants to make sure that he himself, nothing that he does, not, not, no, no attitude that he may have, no behavior he's involved in, he wants to make sure that he is not an obstacle to the gospel. That means he's not getting in the way of an individual hearing the gospel, of understanding the gospel. Not in the sense that he might miscommunicate it, but that he is involved in no behavior that would cause an individual to somehow begin to think, wait a minute, you're, I think I'm getting this gospel thing right, but the way you live, they may not be saying that, but he understands that's a big deal. And so he is talking then again about the way that you live your life. So it's not just about him as an individual. There, this is a clear uh, teaching that is applicable to those he's writing to and to us. Before, Paul said in 1 Corinthians in chapter 8, he did say, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, he wants these believers to understand that though we have liberty in Christ, that we don't somehow allow the liberty we have in the way we live to interfere with an individual's growth in Christ or understanding of the Word of God. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. There are various controversies around Paul that people raised up. And uh, there was, in some cases, when Paul would go to a city, he would uh, be supported by the believers there in his ministry. In other cases, he thought that would be a problem. And so he worked as a tent maker, uh, not exercising his right to make his living, so to speak, off the gospel, because he wanted to make sure there was no obstacle in, again, the presentation of the gospel and how others viewed it and understood God. And so he lived this way, and here he talks about that even though he has a right, he's not using that right, and he's willing to endure even hardship because he wants to make sure, again, that he is not an obstacle. Nothing that he does, nothing in the way he lives creates a hindrance to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is a foundational thought that all of us are to have in our lives as believers. As we approach life, we want to make sure that we are living our life in such a way that we are not an obstacle to the gospel. That includes at home. You want to make sure that your life is an obstacle to your children becoming believers in Jesus Christ. It is a sad thing, but it is true that often, I have no idea what the percentages are, uh, there's been different surveys done, and I'm not sure how accurate they are, but we do know this to be true, that there are those who are raised in what we would call a Christian home, where when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, so to speak, as to what is the real reason, perhaps, why some children of believers 
do not embrace Christianity, it is because of the hypocrisy of their parents. Not the mistakes of the parents, not the sins of the parents, because none of us are perfect, but the blatant hypocrisy, which is normally an ongoing hypocrisy in their life. They see that very clearly. They're not going to call you out on it. Normally, they're not going to say, well, you're a hypocrite, so I don't believe in Christ. This is not going to happen. But when it gets down to where they're, they're reminiscing or they're talking about examining their own beliefs or lack of beliefs, that does come out. We need to make sure that we live our lives in such a way that we are not an obstacle. We need to make sure that our lives are not an obstacle to the growth uh, of our spouse living in light of the gospel because we are in the way. That's important. It's also easily applicable when it comes to your neighbors and to where you work. We want to make sure that no one is able to point to our life and say, well, I'm hearing the gospel, I'm understanding, but based on your life, it's not true. Or based on your life, I don't believe. Now, again, we do know that you know, there's always those situations where an individual may make something up just as an excuse, you know, because of some small thing you did. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about, we'll see in a minute what Paul is explaining um, as to how that plays out and what that really means in our day-to-day living. Ray Stedman says this about this passage that we're looking at. He says that Paul ties this with the previous discussion of the receipt of the grace of God in vain. An understanding of the new covenant does not, that does not drastically alter the way of life is a useless thing. Paul's primary concern in this final section is to address the problem of communication with others who do not yet know this great secret of God-likeness, whether they are new Christians or still unregenerate. The new covenant cannot be lived in isolation, but must bring us into contact with others, both Christians and non-Christians, because authentic Christianity is designed for the world, as it is. Therefore, Paul says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path, so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So, what we often already know as believers, and maybe we don't think about this very often, is we do need to be very careful about personal behavior. We are to give no offense in anything. Now, when I say offense, I don't mean that, you're, that you live your life in such a way that you never hurt anyone's feelings. That's impossible. In fact, maybe today more than ever, it is more difficult to live your life and never hurt someone's feelings. Giving no offense here again is a stronger term that means that you and I are to live our life to a degree so that, again, no one can say and point to you and say, because of that man's life, I have no confidence in the salvation he professes. So I'm not saying that we just overlook small sins in that sense, but we need to understand the strength of what he's saying and what he's getting at. So again, as the Bible has told us many times before, we do not live our lives only for ourselves. We must take into consideration not only others, but again, Christ and the ministry that he's given to each and every single one of us, period. As the scripture says before, we are ambassadors for Christ. You are an ambassador for Christ, whether you want to be or not, if you're a believer. But there's a difference if an individual is a good ambassador or a poor ambassador. That is the difference. Verse 4, Paul says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, some have tried to point out and say that Paul is contradicting himself. Because Paul has said, 
uh, earlier on in chapter 5, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. And so it seems to be this contradiction. Now he's saying we commend ourselves to you in every way. Uh, because again, in verse 12 of chapter 5, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you. So the difference between these two things are this. In chapter 5, he is speaking of not commending themselves in the form of words. In other words, he, it's not boastful, arrogant, self-commendation where he's trying to impress others. Remember, that's what that other group was doing. Those individuals who were trying to influence the church, they were trying to get a following after themselves. In some commentaries, they're referred to as super apostles because that's kind of how they were presenting themselves. And so he's, he's not using their tactics by saying how great he was or maybe how educated he was or that kind of thing to impress them. But in chapter 6, what he's talking about, and this is where he's kind of drawing the line, so to speak, and that is he is commending to them his life his deeds and his attitudes, which speak for themselves. And these other individuals could not point to that. So again, we commend ourselves by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, and the list goes on. So we need to take a look at this. Now, we're going to look at this whole list. We can't spend a lot of time on each of these. We're going to highlight certain ones of them. But he is speaking here about really the characteristics of the Christian life. This is, he is saying, this is how I live. This is my behavior. These are my attitudes. This is what we as believers, how we should be living. This is what those who are leaders, this is how they should be living. This is what Christianity looks like. In the same way that we often take 1 Corinthians 13, and we look at the list of all those attributes of what true love is, and we break that down and say, this is how we are to love each other. This is how we are to love our wives. This is how we are to love our husbands. And we look at all those traits. This is the same thing, except in a broader way. This is the Christian life. So when he says great endurance, it means more than just toughing it out. A non-Christian can tough it out. They can endure hardness uh, and they may even take great pride in their ability to do so. We hear stories about athletes or maybe the Marines or commandos or whoever who often glory in their ability to confront hardship with fortitude and endurance. Here, this is not then merely a reference to passive resignation, which is content to wait with a bowed head till the troubles have run their course. The Greek word that's used here goes way beyond that. It is this. It is the courageous triumph which takes all the pressure and emerges with cheer. It not only refuses to be broken by the pressure, but is actually grateful for the opportunity to endure, knowing it will bring glory to God. So that takes positive thinking to a whole new level. That would take positive thinking and inject it with steroids. Because what this individual is doing, again, is that as they are enduring this is not, again, just, you know, just trying to live day to day. It's not that. No matter how great the pressure, this individual is not saying, I am so happy I have all this pressure. It's not that, but it is, how is life? Life is good. I have so many opportunities to serve the Lord. 
You don't have to go into detail by saying, I have opportunities to serve the Lord by having a good attitude because my life right now stinks, man. There is all kinds of pressure. I'm going to lose my job. My boss hates me. I mean, no, that's not what that is. The idea is that there's a sense of triumph as the believer. You're not living in denial of what's going on, but you are recognizing that whatever hardships you are going through, your dealing with those hardships are to be done in such a way that brings honor to Christ. Because God is not allowing you to go through any of the hardships that he's not in a sense approved of. Whether it's because of your own bad decisions or the sins of others, God has ordained for you to go through whatever those things are that you're going through so he can be glorified through you. What, what, what that gives us an opportunity to do is to reveal to others that we are living day to day in dependence upon God and that it's a real thing. It's a very real thing. That's another one of those reasons why I'm just so troubled by individuals who the moment things go bad in their life and they're feeling sad or you can use the word depressed or whatever, we want to run to a doctor and get a pill. I really am opposed to that as believers. I don't think that it's wrong for us to suffer mentally or emotionally. That may be different if an individual can't get out of it and they may need therapy. And when I say therapy, I use that very loosely uh, because we are Christians and we are to be very different. But that seems to be in some circles, maybe in many circles, kind of a sacred cow that we're not allowed to touch. It's almost as if we're going to carve out a part of life and say, the word of God doesn't touch that. And I don't believe that. I do believe that people have suffered from these kinds of things, sadness, depression, anxiety, for, well, since Adam and Eve. And man sometimes has flourished in the face of all of that. Because faith in God really does count for something. It's not pretend. It, there, there really is truth in that. There have been those, because I have read accounts of individuals who have not overcome their depression and yet live their lives really in a glorious way for the Lord. Suffering, absolutely. Suffering, yes. But we, we live in a time where it seems that, that all suffering needs to be eliminated. And I'm not saying we need to run out there and try, try to suffer. I'm not saying that. But there's something, something is off somewhere. And it should not be affecting believers that way. And we need to go back to the word and what does it say about my life, about your life, and every aspect of your life, which includes whether you want to use the term mental health or emotional health or whatever. Because here these words that Paul is using really must embrace those aspects of life. And he is going through these things. Paul did not, was not just only able to endure these because he was an apostle. He was able to endure these things because he was a Christian. And we need to remember that. When it uses the word afflictions, it's just another word to emphasize trouble or pressure, whether it's physical or mental or both. But there's very real pressure that we feel. Whether it's because we are Christians, because there's people that come against us because we are Christians, or they come against us because of our ministry, or they come against us because of our race, whatever it happens to be, we're dealing with afflictions. But here Paul's talking about the fact that he is living his life in such a way that as he responds to these things and lives under these things, his life brings glory to God. 
it speaks well of the God he believes in. The hardships, the word that's used here means basically difficult circumstances. The idea here is that these circumstances are so difficult that it must inevitably bring about hardship in your life. That, that's the kind of what he's talking about. There's no way of escaping this, which is what calamities uh, emphasizes. It's where you find yourself in a tight corner. You're hemmed in with no way out. It's a narrow strait without any possibility of escape. So we, are, we, may be, we may find ourselves in situations, physical, mental, what have you, where there is no escape from the pressure or from the calamity, but as a believer, you're able to endure, and not only endure in the sense that you're just kind of holding on for dear life, but you're able to endure really in a triumphal way. If you've never read, and there's not a whole lot of books out there like this, but if you've never read books by Richard Wormbrandt and Harlan Popov and some of these guys who have suffered in, in, in their stories in communist prisons only because they are believers and understand the kind of torture they endured day after day after day. And, you know, when, when they were in prison, it, they weren't in prison for a few months and really suffered great torture and then they released. They were in for like 20 years. I don't know about you, but that's a long time. You imagine how many days that is. They talk about feeling abandoned by God and everyone else. And yet, they did endure. There were moments they felt like they were just barely holding on. But as they sought the Lord, they came through triumphantly. Remember that in North Korea, there are many concentration-like camps and, and they are filled with many individuals who are believers. That's why they are there. They are believers. And they are conducting medical experiments on them, just like they did in the Holocaust on Jews in World War II. Many of them are, going, are, are being forced to work without being fed, and they just work until they die, and then they throw their body somewhere and get the next group in. That goes on every single day. And there are many people who are frustrated with that because what can we do? I guess unless you don't have billions of dollars to form your own army to try and get them to escape, I don't know what there is to do. It's a maddening situation. And it's not only there, it is in many other places. So whatever calamities we are facing, we do need to remember them. There are times... Uh, over the past several weeks when I have bowed my head to thank God for whatever meal I'm going to eat and I think of some of the hardships that Christians are going through in other countries, Ukraine and wherever. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't eat. Here I am in some air-conditioned place with probably more than enough food I need to sustain myself, choosing what I want to eat based on taste, preference, etc., and they, they don't have anything. Or whatever can be handed to them. And I, and, I, and I have this, there's this struggle, there's this guilt, and then you go through all this stuff. Well, but I know that God's not placed me there, and I am here, but I am to pray for I mean, just go all the, through all these things, which I, I think is actually healthy. 
But we need to make sure that we don't just think of it in those terms, but we think of this in terms of how I am living and how others are seeing my life and what I'm dealing with, whatever that may happen to be, every day. When he says that he endured beatings, imprisonments, and riots, there's no need to go into the details. We know exactly what that is. When he speaks of labors, the labors there is this. It is hard, unremitting toil to the point of exhaustion. It speaks of an intense effort which can be united with trouble. So whether you're involved in ministry or just life or both, there's this idea that you are working hard. It seems to never end. You are already tired. There is no occasion for you to get the kind of rest that you need. And it is mixed with trouble and all of that. And you continue to work. There's no quitting. There's no going back. There's no giving up. You move forward. There may not be the results you like. If you're teaching Sunday school, there may not be the results that you like to see in the lives of the individuals, adults or kids. There may be for a while even fewer come. And you're wondering, well, I'm putting all these hours in. Well, am I doing that? I, you know, I'm, I'm losing sleep trying to, you know, all that stuff goes on. We serve Christ. And whatever pressures that we are under, whether it's being viewed again by your wife or your husband or your children or others, they need to see us endure as Christians. And too often, what they hear is us complaining like non-believers. Complaining as if God is not sovereign. Complaining as if the most important thing is, is ourselves, the way we feel. Again, I'm not advocating that we run around trying to find ways to suffer. There's plenty of that going around. There, there's, there's going to be suffering. But are we depending upon Christ? Are we truly seeking Him in all of these things? And I think often, when it comes to day-to-day -day living, we don't do that. We think we can handle it. And a lot of times we, we can, to a degree, we can handle it. But then what happens is we're kind of out of practice when the heat's turned up. And we don't do so well. When he talks about sleepless nights and hunger, that goes hand in hand with the labor, the working hard, and the consequences. And we don't really experience some of this. We might experience some of the sleepless nights, not really the hunger, just because of where we live. And that's okay. You know, this isn't somehow, you know, you need to be able to, you know, check off each word and say, oh yeah, I've suffered this, I've suffered this, I'm, I'm, I'm like Paul. That's not what this is about. This is just helping us to understand this is life, this is, these are all the things that life can throw at us, and this is how you are to be as a believer. This is how we are to deal with it in the midst of it and come out of this. Then he mentions purity, which is kind of a, a change of pace because he goes through all these negative things that are happening to us and all this pressure, but purity is there, and what he means is he is re referring to a careful avoidance of all sin that defiles or stains the flesh or spirit. Paul never allowed himself to be found in a compromising relationship with anyone. He carefully guarded not only his behavior, but his thought life, because he knew that is where defilement begins. So the idea of pursuing purity is not just because God has called us to holiness, which he has, but the idea is, again, as a Christian... I want to make sure that I am not an obstacle to the gospel. Sometimes in families, it is the lack of purity, which is the hypocrisy that the kids see. Now again, remember that none of us are perfect, and I think it goes a long way when we sin, when we, if our kids are aware that we ask them to forgive us as well, or acknowledge to them that we have sinned and that we have done what is right but too often what happens is we just pretend 
that nothing has happened or that it's not a big deal, whatever it is, and they learn from that. And what they learn from that is, is that you don't have to deal with your sin. What they learn from that is that, you know, we can live in consistently and it's really going to be okay. This is not where we're trying to drag anyone through the mud. That we face up to our failures and our shortcomings and we deal with it the way, the way we should as believers and move forward. And so again, this idea of purity is important so that we do not become an obstacle to the gospel. Knowledge there that he uses is where his mind was deliberately set on truth. He learned it from the scriptures. He learned it from the revelations from the Lord. He judged all persons and events, not from a human point of view, but from the divine viewpoint as revealed by the Spirit. So we think in uh, with the paradigm of the Word of God, period. Many times, uh, just in, a, in a, a simple way to illustrate this, when I was dealing with inmates when I was a chaplain in the jail, you know, some of these guys, you could tell when they had seen a, a psychologist because they were like, I guess, working on their defense uh, for whatever they had done. And I was talking to a guy once, and this has happened many times, it's a very common conversation, and he was basically telling me that the main reason why he did the things that he did was because of his childhood. And I said, well, just so you know, I said, that might work in court, but that's a bunch of baloney. I said, I know all those things are horrible and I know they influence you, but you chose to do what you did because that's what God says. And the bottom line is, is that God holds you 100% responsible for what you've done. That's your sin. He holds others responsible for their sin as well. So if you were abused or whatever the deal that was going on in your life, that's, that's horrible. And God holds them responsible for that as well. But he holds you responsible for what you've done. I know some of you, I don't know if any of you celebrated, but this past Friday, you know what this past Friday was? It was National Blame Someone Else Day. It really, you know, there's national days for everything, uh, but that's what it was. So um, I hope you use that day appropriately, because uh, I guess that's the only day you could successfully get away with that. Uh, so Friday, it was someone else's fault. Today, it's yours, um, uh, because that's what God says. And it was even your fault on Friday as well. Uh, when it comes to the word patience, uh, this describes Paul's very long fuse with difficult and adversarial people. I think when you read through the life of Paul, he does seem to come across as a guy who's pretty impatient and hard driving, but at the same time, he learned by the Spirit of God to wait for others to catch up, to be understanding about their weakness, to wait quietly for the Lord to do the work of correction that was needed. And so again, why is he living this way? Because he wants to make sure that he is not an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So sometimes the reason why our witnessing is ineffective is not because you don't use the right words. It's because you're not living the right life. You don't have the right attitudes. The word kindness there just simply refers to a gracious attitude. It's the idea of furnishing what is useful, profitable, and needed. It's why we need to be kind to other people. It's very important for your witness as a Christian. He mentions the Holy Spirit. The idea is this. The Holy Spirit, we live within a sphere of the Spirit of God, and it indicates that for Paul, everything he did was carried out in the atmosphere of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's how we should want to live. As you fulfill your responsibilities at work or at home, you want to be enabled by the Spirit of God to do so in a particular way. So it doesn't mean that, you know, I, I know, I've done this for years for my wife. I'm not bragging. It was a deal I made. I like to watch football. So the deal is I fold clothes. Actually, I wash the clothes and fold them so I can watch football and she won't bug me. 
And uh, I've kept my end of the deal now for 40, almost 45 years. It's been a good thing. So when I'm folding clothes, I'm not asking God to give me the power to fold the clothes. I can do that. What I'm asking God to do is to enable me to do so cheerfully. Because after 45 years, it's not so cheerful. Right? There's times I get tired, and I want to do it. But I say, no, that's, that's wrong. Yes, I do what other men do sometimes. Sweetheart, I folded all six loads of laundry today. She says, what do you want, a pat on the back? You made the deal. She's correct. He also mentions genuine love. We don't have time to get into that. Most of us understand what that is. But again, we want to make sure that we genuinely love others for the sake of the gospel. He says by truthful speech, Reverend Brooks says this, here Paul is suggesting that his life and work were not guided by human wisdom and philosophies of his day. His life and work were guided by truthful speech. He lived and worked in obedience to the word of God. He endured life experiences by preaching and living the truth of the word of God. In his ministry, there was no flattery in Paul's words. He made no effort to sweet talk his hearers. He did not attempt to tickle the ears of his hearers. His goal as a preacher was to share God's word as God revealed it to him. Paul endured in sharing the word of truth despite the attitudes of others and the possible sufferings he may encounter because of the sharing of the truth. He did not allow himself to be guided by the trends of the day. He was only concerned about sharing the truth. He says again he does so in the power of God, which is mentioned. Very similar to what we talked about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. When it says with weapons of righteousness for the left hand and for the right, the idea simply is this, is that he is holding in his hands both offensive and defensive weapons, which is that he is advancing and defending himself while being attacked, all with the word of God. When it says through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, that's just very simple, basic human understanding. There are those who will hear you and they will honor you. There are some who will hear you and they will dishonor you. There are some who will hear you and slander you, and there will be some who will hear you and they will praise you. That's just the real world. When he says, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making me any rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So in the Amplified, it reads this way, which is helpful. We are treated as unknown and ignored by the world, and yet we are well-known and recognized by God and his people. As dying, and yet here we are, alive. As chastened by suffering, and yet not killed. As grieved and mourning, yet we are always rejoicing. As poor ourselves, yet bestowing riches on many. As having nothing, and yet in reality, possessing everything. All of these things are listed in the Greek in the present tense, which means these things were always true of him. And all these things are to be always true of us. So I'm going to close with reading to you a section from a book by A.W. Tozer that's called The Incredible Christian. And he says this. He describes the many paradoxes one finds in authentic Christianity and in authentic Christians. And so he says this. At the heart of the Christian system lies the cross of Christ with this divine paradox. The power of Christianity appears in its antipathy, which is deep-seated feelings of dislike, toward, never in its agreement with, the ways of fallen men. The truth of the cross is revealed in its contradictions. Simply observe the true Christian as he puts into practice the teachings of Christ and his apostles, and note the contradictions. The Christians believe that in Christ he has died, 
and yet he is more alive than before, and he fully expects to live forever. He walks on the earth while seated in heaven, and though born on earth, he finds that after his conversion, he is not at home even here. He loses his life to save it, and is in danger of losing it if he attempts to preserve it. He goes down to get up. If he refuses to go down, he is already down. But when he starts down, he is on his way up. He is strongest when he is weakest, and weakest when he is strong. He may be and often is highest when he feels lowest, and most sinless when he is most conscious of sin. He is wisest when he knows that he knows not, and knows least when he has acquired the greatest amount of knowledge. He sometimes does most by doing nothing, and goes furthest when standing still. In heaviness he manages to rejoice, and keeps his heart glad even in sorrow. He fears God, but is not afraid of him. In God's presence he feels overwhelmed and undone, yet there is nowhere he would rather be than in that presence. He knows that he has been cleansed from his sin, yet he is painfully conscious that in his flesh dwells no good thing. He loves supremely one whom he has never seen, and though himself poor and lowly, he talks familiarly with one who is king of all kings and lord of lords. He is aware of no incongruity in doing so. He feels that he is in his own right altogether less than nothing, yet he believes without question that he is the apple of God's eye and that for him the eternal Son became flesh and died on the cross of shame. He is truly an incredible Christian. And so what we need to take to heart is as we look at this list, which I would suggest we should maybe take some time and dwell on throughout the week, is to recognize that this is the Christian life. These are the attitudes that I am to possess and display. It's not that you can do this in the flesh. That is impossible. You make this list out in any way you want and try to work it out for you to live this way, and you're just going to fail miserably. This is going to come as a result of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. As you spend time with God in prayer and the word and meditating and praying for your growth and having others pray for your growth and praying for theirs, this is going to be the natural result, should be the natural result of that. And I, and I trust that you, will, that you would maybe with a sense of jealousy yearn for this to be true of you because in this is great peace and incredible happiness. And, and really an ease of life despite what's going on. If you find that you don't even want to try this or attempt this, perhaps the issue is, is that you need Christ because your total focus is only on yourself and your own happiness. Remember the paradoxes of Scripture. If you really want to find happiness, stop searching for it. If you want to find richness, stop pursuing money. If you want to find contentment, stop trying to be fulfilled. All these things are found in the person of Christ. We're placing our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who came and died as my substitute for my sin. Only in him do I find all of these things. And he produces all of these things in me. I don't want to be an obstacle to anyone's faith. I will confess to you because I know it's true that in my life, I have been. I have been an obstacle to the gospel in the lives of some people. I'm hoping and praying that those were just brief moments, maybe lasting a few days or a few weeks or a few months. Maybe it was longer. I am always still in danger of being an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that I am not that. 
the worst thing, uh, I can't say the worst thing, one of the worst things would be, well, maybe let's rephrase it this way. Here's what would be the worst thing. Imagine hearing from the lips of one of your children or one of your grandchildren that they have never really considered Christ because they never thought that Christ was that big of a deal to you. To me, that would, that would be devastating. I would not be able to hold it together. So, our lives matter a great deal. To God and to others, God has chosen to spread the message of Jesus Christ through you and through me. Let us pick up the mantle that Paul has laid before us and live our lives in such a way that we are not an obstacle or put no obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and unbelievable patience. Father, we thank you again for your sovereign grace where on many, many occasions you imposed your will over and above our failure to show you grace to the lives of others. We thank you, Lord, for the many imperfect people that you use in our lives who they themselves were not an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, you help us to get our priorities in order. The Father, we may have this life of freedom and joy and opportunity that is really laid out for us here in this list of things that Paul is talking about. Father, all of us understand that people desperately need another chance. It's never really a second chance because that was used up a long time ago. But as believers, we know, Lord, that your blessings are renewed every morning. And so, Father, we ask that we would take advantage of your goodness and grace in this way, that we would avail ourselves of your grace and goodness and embrace your word and embrace your promises and seek your help to live this way for you. And we thank you, Lord, that we are forgiven, that our past are not going to be used against us by you. And as always, we pray for those who may not know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would put a spotlight, an emphasis on the emptiness in their life. And they would come to recognize, Lord, that their sin has separated them from Jesus Christ. And that they can be reconciled to you through him. As always, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and your love and your consistency. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.